name is Pastor Josh McLean, and it is a joy to be with you this morning and to bring the word. Uh, I said last week, I love Christmas time. It is one of my favorite uh, times of the year, if not my favorite time of the year, maybe my birthday's my favorite, I don't know. Maybe I should, maybe Jesus' birthday should be my favorite. We've all got problems, uh, misaligned uh, priorities. But I do love Christmas, and one of the things I love about Christmas is or are the smells of Christmas. I, I love the aromas that, that often uh, accompany this time of the year. We we've, may say together that Christmas smells like cinnamon. We may say that Christmas smells like a Douglas fir, and then the debate begins as to uh, which is the best uh, tree to have in your house, if you should have a tree at all. Uh, some, of, some of you might say that Christmas smells like hot chocolate, uh, hot chocolate in uh, toasty fireplaces, and uh, we learned last week that it also smells like hope. Christmas has the aroma of hope, the confident expectation in God's promises, and at Christmas time, at Advent, we're reminded of the promises of God, the promises that he has made and that he has kept and the promises that he has made and we expect him to keep. That's what we looked at last week. This morning, I want to bring to you a sermon that helps us to see that Advent or Christmas smells like love. I have a guilty pleasure confession this morning. One of my favorite songs, and maybe you'll think less of me today, uh, if it is any consolation. Uh, my wife, it's true of her as well, but our favorite Christmas song. Now, not Christmas hymn or Christmas carol, but our favorite Christmas song, I expect some of you to get up and walk out, is Let It Be Christmas Everywhere by Alan Jackson. It's a, it's a good one. Now, again, I didn't say him, I didn't say Carol, but that was a special song that Sarah and I enjoyed at Christmas time, the first Christmas that we enjoyed one another's company, that she was my gal. And so we enjoyed that song. I want to read to you just a part of it. This is what it says. Let it be Christmas everywhere, in the hearts of all people, both near and afar. Christmas everywhere. I could be singing it with an accent, which sometimes when I do sing it at home, I do sing it in an Alan Jackson accent, but I won't. But let it be Christmas everywhere. Feel the love of the season wherever you are. On the small country roads lined with green mistletoe. Big city streets where a thousand lights glow. Let it be Christmas everywhere. I love that song. Feel the love of the season wherever you go, wherever you are. Now, The way that I interpret this song is not the love of the season that we see on the Hallmark Channel and all about, uh, you know, getting Christmas presents and driving a red Ford pickup truck and and having scarves and, you know, finding the love of your life at a Christmas tree farm or whatever else those shows are all about. You know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about that love, but I'm talking about the love that we see in the incarnation and on the cross. That's the love that that I long to see everywhere I go. And in some way, I believe that it's true that at Christmas time, we may not see it everywhere, but we do see it far more at this time in comparison to other times. There is a magical feeling, if you will, that emanates from this season and it marks every bit of what we enjoy at this time. And it is love. This morning, as we look at Isaiah chapter 40, particularly verses 3 through 5, we're going to see a story that, if, if you can, if you can follow me here, that smells a lot like Christmas because it smells a lot like 
love. This morning we are looking at another prophecy concerning Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That was given and fulfilled there in Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn there. Isaiah was a godly prophet. He lived in the 8th and 7th century. If that's confusing to you, ask your mom. But the centuries are backwards uh, before Christ. Um, So he was there in the 7th and 8th century. And he spoke about the coming destruction, both of Israel and of Judah. And really this book contains a lot of bad news. Really verses, or chapter 1 through 39 is a lot of bad news. The chickens have come home to roost, so to speak. The the children of Israel have broken their covenant with Yahweh and what they have asked for, what they've bargained for is coming their way. Destruction, both of the temple, uh, uh, of the city, of everything that they know and love. They've repeatedly broken God's law and God's covenant with them. And now at the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, respectively, they would be moved into exile. This is a terrible, terrible thing. It's easy for us to say, oh, yeah, well, the children of Israel, they experienced an exile for a large period of time and they were displaced. But if you really think about the pain that would be associated with that, and you say, well, they deserved it. Well, that's exactly right. They did deserve it. And yet that doesn't make it any less painful or sad. And that's where they're at right now. But there's a turn that takes place in between chapters 139 and 40. And we can really see that there in the, in the very first verses of chapter 40 that we'll get to in just a minute. But Isaiah begins to prophesy about some other things, not so bad things that are going to take place. Because in chapters 1 through 39, a couple questions begin to rise to the surface. Both from those who are God's people and those outside looking on. The question is being asked, is God finished with Israel? Is he done with them? Is this whole thing over? Is he going to start fresh? Was he finished with Israel? Maybe if you were an Israelite at this particular time, heading into exile, being deported, maybe a question comes on your mind like this. Did the fall of Israel, does does all this mean, all this that's happening, does that mean that Yahweh, the God that we worship, that he is dead? or that he is weak, or that he has left us and abandoned us. So depending on what side you're on, what side of the wall you're on, you might ask the other question. Is God finished with Israel? Is God dead? Is he weak? Has he abandoned them? What's going on? You see, the, the, the exile, though, it, it, it would prove that God had either forsaken his people or that he wasn't really the God of history that many of them believed he was. You might ask the question, why was God not able to defend his people from wickedness, from the the pagan nations that influenced them, from the sinful wickedness? You might even be asking yourself that question this morning. And all these questions are good questions that Isaiah really gets to the bottom of, and he gives this answer, no. No. Chapter 40, Isaiah says, no, God is not finished with Israel, nor is he dead, nor is he too weak, nor was this not a part of his plan. God was not caught off guard. You see, there's a shift in verse one of chapter 40. You can see it if you just want to look. We're not going to be preaching through these verses, but just for context's sake, verse one, the first verse, the first word says, 
comfort. This is a quotation. This is God telling his mouthpiece to comfort his people. Comfort. God realizes the, the predictions, the, it would be a, the pain that would be associated with the scorn and the rejection that they were going to be facing. And in the prophetic timeline, he says, now, comfort them. If you keep going, he says, comfort my people. If you're familiar with the book of Isaiah at all, you'll recognize that a couple times, God, in, in reference to his people, does not use that phrase, my people. No. Almost with disdain, he says twice, this people. Chapter six, verse nine. Chapter eight, verse six. This people. And this people had broken their vows to God. They had promised that they would do this and that, that they would obey his law and keep his commands. And yet they didn't. And at a point in time, God referred to them as this people. But now, in chapter 40, he says, my people. So you can see that the tone has changed. And the message of comfort that Isaiah is delivering, it sees past the coming captivity. It sees past their sins. It sees past their sufferings that will one day be over. Why? Because the Lord, as verses three through five teach us, the Lord is on his way. Isn't that good news? If you're an Israelite this morning, that's great news that God is looking past your punishment. He's looking past the things that you've brought upon yourself. He's even looking past your sin and he's saying, I am on my way. In his love, in his covenant faithfulness, God determines to visit his people. And of course, it will be important to make every preparation for his arrival, which we'll look at again this morning. Ultimately, we'll end this morning in verse five. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. That's what we're looking at today. God looks past the sin of his people and he decides to come to them, to come to their aid recognizing that the glory that is only his alone will be revealed and not just to the children of Israel, but to all flesh. And so that's a little bit of the background. Let's, let's read the text again together. Isaiah chapter 40, verses three through five. Hopefully it's on the screen for you this morning. This is what the word of God says. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain hill be made low and uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's go to God. Father, we ask this morning briefly that you bless the reading of your word by the power of your spirit as your saints gather. We ask these things in the name of Jesus alone. Amen. Let's walk through this passage quickly. The verse number three, it starts out by saying a voice cries. Uh, before we answer the identity of this voice, which many of you guys already know, 
I want to ask this just to help you clarify and locate. At what point is this voice calling? At what point in time? From the perspective of this book, it is a future call. You see, the bad things that are about to take place that are prophesied in chapters 1 through 39, most of them haven't even taken place. And yet this verse 3 through 5 of chapter 40 is saying in a future tense, hey, you're going to be, in a future time, you're going to be calling out and saying this thing. It's written before the destruction of Jerusalem. Before most of the pain that they had even experienced, God was saying there's coming a time when your punishment will be done and you'll be welcomed back into the land. Now, as to the identity of the voice, we have the benefit of knowing the New Testament, of having that, and all four Gospels in unison tell us who this voice is. Isaiah, 700 years before John the Baptist is saying, hey, there's coming a person who's gonna say this. God's commanded that he say this. And so we know now that John the Baptist is the one who utters these words. Since we know that it's John the Baptist that is the voice here in chapter 40, we also know that John the Baptist was speaking of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. He's wanting us to know that the the way being prepared for the Lord, that the Lord is Jesus. And this isn't the only time in the New Testament where an Old Testament passage is speaking of the Lord and it then is applied to Jesus. And so we know that this voice is John and he's speaking of Jesus. Prepare the way of Jesus, of our Lord. And God is sending John the Baptist as a messenger to his people to comfort them. And what's cool is they already know the script. John's script was delivered 700 years before he arrives to declare it. God gave that message to his people both to comfort them and to help them be prepared. And even now as we consider the coming of our Lord, we also would do well to heed what John said, what Isaiah said John would say. But what is he saying? Look at verse three. This is what that mouthpiece of God is saying, the prophet. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. What is this way? Well, the way refers to a highway or a path. And it says here, from the desert, and this is post-exile, the people of God are back in the city of God. They're back in Jerusalem. And so, Piecing this together, it's a desert highway that comes into the city. The exiled people have returned to Jerusalem. The walls have been torn down, the temple stripped, and now they're back there in the city of God. It was the city that enveloped the great temple of God where sacrifices would be made. It was dedicated to God. And on the day that it was dedicated to God, many years before, the presence of God suddenly filled the temple At one point in time, this was the city where God dwelt. But he had left long before his people were exiled. And now that they've returned the question on their hearts as they look around the abandoned city, 
Ichabod, as it were, ridden across the temple gates. The glory of God has departed. They long for something. They long for the very presence of God to be back in their midst. You can understand that. Maybe there's been points and times in your life where you felt far from God. This is so much greater than that, but you can still understand a little bit of that. Maybe there's been dry seasons in your walk with God and you felt maybe either because of some trial that you're going through or some sin that you've wandered and been tempted in that you just don't feel the presence of God any longer. This is what they're experiencing as they walk back into the city. Longing for God to return. They're there. Is God there? In their hearts and their minds, they don't believe that he's there. If God's not in the temple, on the temple mount there in Jerusalem, where is he? Where's the last place that they, the children of Israel, had seen God before this time? Sinai. Where was God if he wasn't in Jerusalem? He was in Sinai. Do you remember the history of the Hebrew people? They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, but God delivered them. Do you remember that? He, he brought them out of Egypt to the base of Mount Sinai. Moses, his servant, he ascends the mountain as a cloud of thunder eclipses the mountain. And there God gives the law and enters into a covenant with his people. And now that was all in the past. The covenant was broken and the glory of God had departed. And to this reality, the, po- the prophet is booming. Prepare the way of the Lord, he is coming. Imagine the weight that the children of Israel had in their hearts, knowing that they had broken God's covenant, wondering if he had abandoned them and knowing that he wasn't there in the temple. Thinking in their minds that he is back at Sinai where they had gone and entered into covenant with God. So why is God coming through the desert? Why is the Lord in his highway, why is it coming through the desert? Geographically, the way to get from Sinai to Jerusalem is through the desert. So God is seen figuratively as having left Jerusalem and returned to Sinai, but now as coming from his distant residence on Mount Sinai to aid his people in their hour of distress. And the people cannot help themselves. They can't fix what they've done. And so God himself must come down from his mountain, his holy mountain, and come to their aid. When you hear this prophecy, when you read this text, think of that. The despondency and the despair on the hearts of the Israelites as they gather, knowing that they can't, make their way back to God, that God alone will have to come to them. God will be returning to his people. That is a wonderful truth. And yet they must prepare. Look at verse four. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. What are the children of Israel to do? They are to prepare the way so that their Lord can return. They hear the prophecy and in faith, 
Having not seen the king on his way, believing that this message is true, or to begin to prepare the way. Now, if they begin to hang signs and garland and, and fix in the roads over the course of the next 700 and some years, it will go back to disrepair. And so is it really referencing that God will descend from Sinai literally and walk back to Jerusalem now and that they must prepare the way? No, it's figurative language. Speaking of their hearts, that they are to prepare the way for God. And what would that look like? What would it look like for Israelites who had just come back from exile? What would it look like for them to have prepared the way for the Lord? It would look like humility. It would look like repentance. The high places in their lives, those being torn down. The low places, lack of faith and trust in God, that being turned from and being raised up. This is difficult work, like moving mountains into valleys and leveling out the landscape. It's challenging. And yet this is what preparation for God looks like in the hearts of his people. And he would return to them. And then what happens? Look at verse five. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. The glory of God is, in fact, the manifestation of his reality, his absolute reality. It's the revelation of it for mankind. The, the Hebrew word for glory means weight, has this idea of weightiness, a heaviness, not in a sad way necessarily, but in knowing and substance, there's something there. The glory of God, the presence of God is heavy. It's palpable. And we know that the glory of God that we read here in verse five, that that has been revealed for us this morning in the face of Jesus Christ, as 2 Corinthians chapter four tells us. If you're taking notes down, I encourage you to write that reference down. 2 Corinthians chapter four, verse six. What does the word of God say? Let light shine out of darkness. God said, let light shine out of darkness. That same God, he has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in what? In the face of of Jesus Christ. And when did that happen? When did light shine out of darkness? When did light shine into our hearts and give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? 700 years after Isaiah prophesies. There in the incarnation, there in Bethlehem, leading to the cross of Christ, working its way through Gethsemane, up to the cross, out to the temple or to the, the garden tomb, and finally to the ascension. And those moments, as we read on the pages of scripture, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, the Messiah. And moving forward in verse five, it says, and all flesh shall see it together. This speaks of the entire world and even in the sense of the last days, the idea is. And so what, what's actually happening here? Well, it's not merely a return from uh, exile that they're experiencing here, that all flesh will see it together, but it's, it's really the realization of God's saving purposes for the entire world as he works in the entire world. I'm not speaking of universalism, but I'm speaking 
Isaiah is speaking of all flesh seeing the glory of God and as he works amongst his elect, all nations will see it and many will be called from all nations. All flesh will see it together. It rings back to the promise to Abraham and you, all the promises of, or all the, uh, sorry, all the, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We're reminded of the fact that every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess, what? Jesus Christ is Lord. And what are we to do with this, this prophecy? A voice crying, telling us to prepare the way, saying that the the Lord is returning and that his glory will be revealed to all flesh. The last phrase in verse five, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Might seem like a weird thing to attach to a statement in this day and age. But the fact that the mouth of God has spoken, the fact that God himself has spoken, that his word is sure, that his word is trustworthy, brings us to the place of hope. That God would not abandon his people. And in fact, he didn't. No, this prophecy, it came true in the life of Christ, in the incarnation and at the cross. And we Part of that all flesh also behold that glory. And many of you know that's why we're gathered here this morning. This is a prophecy that the Lord would come to his people. And the Lord has spoken. It is a sure promise. We can have hope in the second coming. Why? Because we have seen the first. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. So Christmas smells like hope. What else does it smell like? How is it that comfort can be offered to this sinful people, the children of Israel, who had abandoned God, broken his law and covenant, people who are deported and killed? How could, how could God do this what would be the motivation maybe it's the fact that they had suffered enough and that their suffering had canceled out their sin in one sense they had suffered long enough but can their sin really can their their punishment really atone for what they've done against God a sin against an eternal God can their punishments Blot that out. Satisfy that. I don't think so. And so will God just nonchalantly then declare that the case is closed? Done. We'll just forget this whole thing ever happened. Is that what's happening here? What is that the motivation? God's just tired of fooling with it. It's not so much patience as it is just a, a, an understanding that this is not going to get any better. And so he might as well just wipe the books clean. Hardly. How are we to draw encouragement from this passage? Well, it's in the fact that the activity is solely on the Lord, that he comes into the sphere of human activity, not Israel to him, but he to Israel. You see, Israel nor any other human, you included, you can't ascend the hill. 
You can't come to God. Only God can come down. And it's the coming of God. It's the manifestation of him in our sight at the incarnation that brings us comfort. But how could he do this? And why would he do this? What's the motivation? The motivation is his own love. I want you to think about this idea of God's love. It's very simple. It'll be on the screen for you here. This is the the main point, if you will. That God's love is demonstrated by his willingness to give of himself for the good of others. God's love is demonstrated by his willingness to give of himself for the good of others. And you say, that's so simple. And it is. And yet it's beautiful. Love is an attribute of God. Every divine attribute that God has is in harmony with one another. Each attribute, it expresses God's uh, uh, over and abundant love. I want to just pause just for a second. If, if you're a, a kiddo here today, we've got these little clipboards that are made available for you back as you walk in the door right over here. And this is a place for you to take sermon notes. You say, well, I'm, I'm eight years old. Is this for me? It is for you. You say, well, I'm 37 years old. Is this for you? Sure. There's a few, there's, there's one or two left over there this morning. And so parents and kids and everybody in between, I want to encourage you to, to, to consider using this resource. This is a wonderful resource. On, on this resource, it, it has uh, opportunities for kids to help interact and stay connected with the sermon. And so there's a place for them to put their name, to mark there who's preaching this morning, and to color picture of every time you hear the word Jesus or God or church or love or the Bible. By the way, if you're, if you're coloring those in, I just gave you uh, five things to color in. But it also has a, a highlight there. These are refreshed every single week. This is the notes for December 6th. The, the, the notes that I want you to really focus in on this morning and the highlight that we have for the kids is one of the attributes of God. We do one every week, and this week it's Trinity. Let me read to you about Trinity. This is what it says about God, one of the attributes of God, that God is Trinity. And this means that God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They all have the same attribute and all have the same power. They're perfect. They're in, sorry, they're in perfect harmony with one another. So I'll leave that be, I won't reference that anymore, but I wanted to, 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 to connect this with the sermon because this is a great uh, a, a part for us to talk about. That God's love is demonstrated by his willingness to give of himself for the good of others. One of God's attributes is, is love. One of, another of his attributes is Trinity and justice and holiness and jealousy and wrath. And all of these attributes, they work in accordance with one another and they're not at odds. So that God demonstrates his love, not only in his goodness, but also in his mercy. He demonstrates his love in his grace and compassion. He also does it in his faithfulness. But God also demonstrates his love through his holiness he demonstrates his love through, through justice and through jealousy and through wrath. Why? Because his love is holy, just as his holiness is what? Loving. Christians have agreed from the beginning that in regards to God, he from eternity has overflowed with love. And so what's that got to do with Trinity? Well, if God is love now, 
and he is unchanging, then that means that God was loving from the beginning. But who did God love in the beginning? In the beginning, there was no creation. So who did God love in the beginning? Did God become loving at some point in time? No, God has always been loving. And so who did God love? And I love this point here. God has not changed. Not from eternity past. He has always been loving. Rather, instead of beginning to love, the triune eternal God has always, from the beginning, interacted with itself. Father, Son, and Spirit, all characterized by love. Some theologians have described it in a way that's like the Trinity is as an, it's like an eternal exchange of, of loving relationships from the beginning of time. God has always been love. The Trinity, love between the three persons of the Trinity. One God, three persons operating in love. And not only has there always been love within the Trinity, but scripture teaches that God has had a plan of salvation which demonstrates his love for mankind from the foundation of the world, from before the foundation of the world. Psalms chapter 139 speaks to this. Isaiah chapter 22 speaks to this. Ephesians 1 and chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy 1. They all speak to that. Let me give you one though. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. It says this, even as he, speaking of God, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we, the church, should be holy and blameless before God the Father. He chose us before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. You think about that. God has existed for all of eternity. And from the beginning, he has, uh, he has been loving. He has been love. By the way, he defines love, not you. But he's always loved us ever since creation. And even before creation, before the foundation of the world, Ephesians tells us, God loved his church. Think about that. In, in, in that plan, the son, according to the father's plan and the spirit, he is appointed to be the mediator for his people before the foundations of the world. And the son gladly, he willingly accepts that assignment with all of its requirements and all the promises that would be given to his people on behalf of their redemption. And all of these things are then worked out, all these promises, all of these requirements are worked out in the life of Christ, in his incarnation, and even in his death, resurrection, and ascension as he goes and sits next to the Father. You see, the Father would send the Son. This is speaking of the, the love and inner workings and unity of the Trinity. The Father would send the Son. The Spirit would conceive Christ in the flesh, as, if, as Luke tells us. The Son would bear our sin and the Father's wrath as a man. And he would do that in the power of the Spirit. So if you're taking notes, we've talked about the Trinity a good bit today. One God, three persons, working together in love, all with different roles, achieving the loving redemption of God's people. In the Old Testament, it speaks of God's loving relationship and uses the word has said, which means God's covenant faithfulness, which is almost the same thing as God's love. And so throughout the covenants with Israel, 
God, Yahweh, he associated himself with his people in a great act of love, one that wasn't earned, one that they did not deserve as Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse seven teaches. They didn't earn that. They weren't the best people, but God loved them and he chose them. If you're a Christian here this morning, there's a parallel between Israel and you in the sense that are you any better than anybody else? Why is it that God has demonstrated and extended his glory to you? It's not because of any work of righteousness that you've done, but it's according to his mercy and his love that he has saved you, if in fact he has saved you. In the New Testament, God's love is demonstrated really most powerfully, most clearly in two things, Christ's incarnation and in his death. Now, many things demonstrated, has, has demonstrated God's love for us. It's just simple things like cherry pie tastes good. And sun, sunrises and sunsets are beautiful. But we see the love of God most clearly displayed in the incarnation of Christ. God, the Son, the second person in the Godhead, adding to himself a human nature, taking on flesh, becoming like you in every way except sin. We see the love of God there. And then going to the cross. Do we not see it even more clearly there? That is, Philippians chapter two would tell us that he would become obedient, not just to take on a human nature, but then also to become obedient to the death of the cross. God's love, as James tells us, is on display, not just in word, but in deed. And so let's look at these two deeds that, that God has displayed his love through. The first, the incarnation. Ultimately, Isaiah in, in, in chapter 40, verses three through five, it, he's prophesying of a coming Messiah. Prepare the way of the Lord. This is the incarnation. This is God taking on flesh. So from the opening verses of scripture, God presents himself as the uncreated, independent, self-existent, self-sufficient, all-powerful God who created everything and even now governs it as we, we read about that in Genesis all the way to Colossians. And there's a distinction that we see being clearly drawn out in the, the opening pages of scripture and that is that there is a creator and that there, is, there are then creatures. Creator and creatures. And these two things are distinct and must always remain distinct. There is no pantheism. There is no panentheism. God is not this world. Nor is he in, 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 in some base sense in the world and combined with it. There's always a creator-creature distinction. One of the ways that we think about that distinction is by this term transcendent. Transcendent. It means that God is above he is outside of, he's different from, he's beside or aside his creation. He is not in his creation and he is not his creation. But that transcendent God that we worship and read about on the opening pages of scripture all the way to the end of the book and Revelation is a God who is also imminent. He is above he is outside, and yet he is also nearby. The word eminent, it simply could be described as, as the equivalent of with. 
He's with. Even thinking of this idea of imminent and how closely it, it sounds to Emmanuel, God with us. You see, God is the creating force. He's the creator of the world and yet he is with us. He's transcendent and yet he's also imminent and we see his imminence in his incarnation in him taking and putting on flesh, adding the, the second person of the Trinity, adding to himself, adding to his person and his, de, uh, his, his, his godly nature, a human nature, and dwelling among us and we beholding his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. One theologian put it this way, God is fully present in this world and intimately involved with his creatures. He freely, sovereignly, and purpose, purposefully sustains and governs all things to his desired end. His imminence should be as much celebrated as his transcendence. And think of this, not one more than the other, but each more because the other. You see, the fact that he is transcendent makes his eminence so much sweeter. And vice versa. His eminence, his with us, his nearness, his coming to us on that way, on that road, makes his transcendence so much more powerful. And so not one more than the other, but each more because the other. You see, our God, he is a God who comes near to his creatures and he seeks fellowship with them. And we've seen that even from the beginning as God installs priests who dwell before God and mediate between his people as he dwells with them. And so why would God come to his people? Why would he do such a thing? Well, John chapter three, verse 16, it tells us, for God, what? So loved the world Yes, this verse is still in the scriptures that he loved them so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Listen to this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world through him might be saved. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that his son would take on flesh at the incarnation and dwell with us. He walked that pathway. He walked that highway that John preached about and he dwelt among us. He came down from his temple. He came down from his holy mountain and he came to us. Do you recognize that the eminence of Christ is the only salvation that you could ever experience? Is there, any, is there salvation in any other thing but that God would, the transcendent God, the God that is above and beside all creation would come into creation and come to you and rescue you. And so many of us, that's why we're here this morning. We're celebrating that truth that God came down. He dwelt with us. He sought us out in the incarnation. His incarnation was an act of love, but consider this. If the incarnation was alone, just incarnation, would it be enough? If Jesus just came down and added to himself a human nature, would that be enough 
to experience what we experience and to even walk next to us, would that be enough? No, it would not. Our salvation requires so much more than Bethlehem. It requires more than Gethsemane. It also requires Calvary and even the empty tomb. You see, Christmas is not enough. What we celebrate at Advent is not enough. We also need Good Friday and we need Easter. Why? Because we need the cross. And God's love is so evident. It's so powerfully displayed in the incarnation there as Jesus swaddled in that manger. But we also need to see the love of God in the death of Christ there on the cross. Romans chapter five, verses six, six through eight. What does it say? Verse six, for a while we were still weak, unable to ascend the hill, unable to come to God, not even desiring to do so. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not just Christ came to the ungodly, but that Christ died for the ungodly. He goes on to say, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. You wouldn't lay your life down for a righteous person, would you? That's a huge sacrifice. He goes on to say, though, though perhaps for a good person, a decent person, not perfect, would dare even to die. But what happens? Verse eight, God shows some translations say demonstrates, commends his love for us when in that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. When we look to the cross of Christ, what do we see? On display, we see the love of our triune God. A moment ago, we thought about the various attributes of God at the cross The two attributes most clearly in view are God's holiness and God's love. In scripture, divine holiness and love, they are never set against each other. And yet in our minds, there is a tension as we follow the biblical storyline. How can God reconcile his love and his holiness? How can he do such a thing? How could he love his people so much and yet also continue to maintain, as if he needed to, this attribute of justice. It's on the cross that that tension is resolved. As God satisfies his own demands and not a demand that's divorced from his person. You see, so many people, when they think of the atonement of Christ, of, of Christ and the, the power of the cross, they, they look at it and they think, well, this is just divine cosmic child abuse, that God would punish his son. And you see, they say, well, why would he just forgive it? You see, because the law is not arbitrary to God. The law of God, the righteousness of God, it emanates from his very being. It emanates from his justice because he is justice. And so how can the love of God and the holiness and the justice of God be reconciled at the cross. There and only there can they be reconciled. That the just demands of a holy God, infinitely powerful, that they would be met by God himself. And he's the only one able to do such a thing. One theologian, Stott, he, 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 he captures this idea well. He says, it is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. He needs to be satisfied. God himself who is in holy love undertook to do the propitiating, the the satisfying, the covering. And God himself who is the person of his son died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus, 
God took in his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it his own self in his own son when he took our place and died for us. There is no crudity here to evoke or ridicule, only the profundity of holy love to evoke our worship. Christian, do you see the love of God this morning? You say, I've done Advent candles before. I've put on bow ties. I've decorated Christmas trees. I've come to Christmas Eve services. I've exchanged gifts. I've sang carols. I know Luke 2 by, by like the back of my hand. While those things may be true, when you consider the incarnation and the cross of Christ, does that not evoke worship out of you? Does that not draw it out of you? To see the love of God fully on display in the manger and at the cross. It should cause worship to pour from your heart. And I pray that that's how we end this morning here in just a moment. But before we get there, I, I, I wanna talk about one thing. There's an aspect of the cross that I think is elevated more above the other and rightfully so. It's the aspect of redemption. There's many things that are taking place in the atonement that Christ is working there on the cross. He is redeeming us. He is ransoming us. He's propitiating. He's accomplishing the Father's plan to pay for the debt of sin that we owe. And that's true. But there's another aspect that is often forgotten when we consider the cross of Christ. And it's that it was an example for us. You see, it's no less than redemption, but it is a little bit more than that. He is dying as an example for his church, for his children to emulate. The way that Jesus laid down his life should serve as an example that we emulate. Now recognize this, we could never do that if we weren't dead in Christ and raised in Christ. We could never do that. We could never emulate the, that perfect life of submission and obedience and selflessness that Christ did had he not redeemed us. And so these two things are to be taken together. First Peter chapter two, verse 21 says this. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. See, not only has he suffered for us, redeeming us, but he also suffered for us as an example, willing, desiring, and even accomplishing that we would follow in his steps. And so what example should we emulate this morning? We should emulate Christ's. What principle undergirds this example? The law of God. When Jesus was here, what did he say was the chief commandment? When he walked the earth, the Pharisees, they'd heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. What'd they do? They gathered together. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 35, one of them said to Jesus, he was a lawyer. He asked him a question to test him, to test Jesus. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second is like it. You didn't ask for that? I'm gonna give it to you for free. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. When we look at the incarnation of Christ, when we look at the cross of Christ, we see the love of God working together amidst those three persons that comprise the Trinity. Working love to us and not only redeeming us, but calling us to emulate that same love. And so what are we to do here at Christmas time? We are to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our minds. And we're to love our neighbor as ourself. Let me ask you a question. If we spent some time reflecting this morning, collectively and individually, if we spent some time reflecting on the love of God displayed in the incarnation and the cross, and we began to emulate that love to those around us, what would that look like? What would it look like in your life? What would it look like collectively as a church? It would look like Isaiah chapter 40, verse five. It would look like the glory of God shown about for all flesh, for all the world to see. That's what it would look like. And what would it smell like? smell a lot like Christmas smell a lot like love the third stanza of silent night goes like this silent night holy night son of God loves pure light radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace it's just beginning Jesus Lord at thy birth Jesus, Lord at thy birth. Church, this morning, let's end where the text does. That we, all flesh, having seen his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, would stand and in worship praise him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truths that we've seen this morning from your word. As we consider advent and we consider that you've called us to hope to have a confident expectation in your promises confident because we know that it has come from the mouth of God confident because we've seen the fulfillment of the promises that your people have longed for and one after the other have been fulfilled so we have a hope this morning but father we also have a love, a love that we are able to emulate because we have seen it in you. And we love you and we love others as the church. Why? Because you first loved us and we see that love in the cross and we see that love in Bethlehem. Father, we pray that even more today, that we would see the realization of Isaiah chapter 40, verse five, that the glory would be revealed to all flesh. God, would you allow us to see that a little bit clearer this morning and would we reflect it a little purer? We ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone, amen.